The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Gia, your new favorite non-alcoholic aperitif. But don't just listen to me. The folks over at Gia have been racking up some serious accolades to back up their leadership in the non-alcoholic space. In fact, Gia was the first ever non-alcoholic brand in history to win Esquire's Drink of the Year Award. They won BevNet's Best of 2021 Award for their RTD category. And most recently, Gia was named one of Fast Company's top 10 most innovative consumer goods companies of 2022. So what exactly is all the hype about? Gia boasts a collection of zero-proof social tonics inspired by Mediterranean aperitif culture. By combining their signature mix of botanicals, herbals, and natural nervines, herbs known to soothe the mind and bring the body back from burnout, Gia has created original, craveable flavors that don't mimic or make you miss the boozy ones. No nasties here, no artificial flavors, no sugar, no alcohol, just like we like it. Try it yourself and see what the very worthy hype is all about. Save 20% off your first purchase at drinkgia.com with code STORIES. That's code STORIES for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Silver Stories crew, we are back. We took a brief little hiatus last week as my family wrapped up some summer travel. Was it as weird for you to not spend Friday together as it was for me? I'm glad to be back and able to share this next conversation with you today. On the podcast, I interviewed an old friend and colleague, Kayla Lyons. Kayla is a harm reduction advocate, soon to be a published author, and a brand builder. You may know her as the founder of A Thousand Hours Dry, co-host of the podcast Generation Dry, or creator of her newest venture, Join Soberish. Kayla and I also used to co-host a podcast a while back, which is another place you might know her from. Recently celebrating six years of recovery from alcohol use disorder and drug dependence, Kayla believes that all forms of sobriety and recovery are valid and hopes to continue to spread that message by being of service. Kayla and I dug into what soberish means and how the alcohol-free space is rapidly expanding to include all sorts of paths. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Kayla and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. We forgot to add a quick content warning in the introduction of this episode, so we want to make sure to cover that. In this episode, we do briefly discuss topics of intimate partner violence, eating disorder, and thoughts of suicide. As always, if those are sensitive topics for you, if those are topics that do not serve or support you, we invite you to click on to the next episode. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew. I guess we should start recording this. Kayla and I have been um, catching up for the last 20 minutes, which I guess is the benefit and then also the problem of recording a podcast with a friend. But Kayla, welcome to Sober Stories. Hello. I feel like- How's your day going? It's long. It's been long, but good. I'm I'm glad. I was like looking forward to this. I was like, ah, mm-hmm. I get to talk to mm-hmm. Beth. It's like- the dry life all over again. I know. I know. Yeah. I mentioned in the introduction that there may <laughs> maybe some folks who remember that throwback when we actually co-hosted a podcast together for a summer, but I'm really excited to have you on and really get an update about what you're doing in this space and what is coming up for you, but also for the folks who don't know you and don't know your story to really just 
tell some good stories. So with that in mind, give the folks listening, if they don't know you, kind of the high notes, who you are, where you are, what you do, and then we will dig into your story. Totally. So my name is Kayla and I'm probably best known, I guess, for creating A Thousand Hours Dry, which is an online community, but also a challenge. You may also know me from the Reframe app. I worked there for two years. I did a lot of their content, social media. You may be familiar with my voice because it's (laughs) most of the audio on there. Um, Mm -hmm. And recently I created Join Soberish, which is a community and future platform for people in the recovery space. And I'm trying to think of anything else. Oh, your podcast? Yeah. I, you may know me from me, me and Beth's podcast, <laughs> our podcast, uh, The Dry Life, um, or my new podcast, Generation Dry. Um, yeah, I'm kind of everywhere. I- yeah. I was going <laughs> to say, you have quite the C- CV. You've got a really extensive credentials list in the sober space. So I feel like a lot of folks around here have to know you because of all of the work you've been doing in here. But for maybe the people who know your face, know your voice, but don't know your your story, what has been your journey to where you are today? Yes. Well, I've been trying to think of a way to put it <laughs> that I haven't repeated before a bunch of times, but I, I feel like the best way sometimes to tell it is to almost start with where I am now and then go backwards mm. to give a better depiction of how far you can come like and the endless limitations of recovery and i say recovery mm-hmm. specifically because that's what i really consider myself to be in i'll use you know i'll throw in like sobriety soberish whatever like other words but for me my journey has not really been linear it hasn't been the typical i think you know traditional abstinence or sobriety journey, mm-hmm. what what worked for me in year one, and then what's been working for me and now it's starting year seven are completely different. But I feel like evolution is necessary in recovery. So mm. I mean, where I'm at now, I just celebrated six years of recovery. And I know I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and honestly, it, it came at a really turbulent life like time in my life, like I'm going through a separation. So I'm living with my parents currently, which is not fun Mm. to celebrate your six years or your 30th birthday Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. You know, so it's been at a time in my life that I think in the past, I totally would have been like, I'll just go back to my old ways because what's the point? Mm. You know, I quit my job, you know, I, I left behind, not left behind, but you know, I I basically have to completely start over, Mm. but rather than looking at it from a negative point of view, just talking to a lot of people about it have been able to really kind of help me to shift to a more growth mindset. Because I think where I started, I would have allowed negative negative life circumstances to really hinder me, Mm. you know, like, because I'm writing a book. I'm doing, you know, like in the middle of, you know, like you recording podcasts, creating this new platform and old me would have allowed a really big negative life event to just completely be like, fuck it. 
Mm -hmm. I'm going to just, you know, not text my, not message my editor back at all. And I'm going to, you know, completely just like stop going to work and uh, not show up for anybody and Mm -hmm. isolate myself and, you know, probably like text your boyfriend or something. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and instead I've really been able to use this as a time to completely reinvest in myself mm. and reevaluate reevaluate my core values reevaluate my priorities and again i i'm saying this because where i came from before and who i was before didn't think about any of these things i didn't think about well wow i feel like shit right now and i have no motivation to do anything like i'm depressed i'm sad i'm anxious but in 6 weeks from now if I don't get my ass to the yoga studio, if I don't go to my therapy, if I don't practice my driving, I'm going to be in the same place I am now mm. or worse. So I have to do it for future me. Mm. That's how I think now. Mm. You know, I'm able to kind of future cast. Whereas Kayla in active addiction was probably the reason I was in active addiction because I couldn't think ahead and I also couldn't think outside of my outside of my current circumstance. So for me, really... I started semi young, not, I, I don't, I don't think, you know, anything crazy, but you know, 14, 15, right in that middle school, high school age, when I think it's kind of the right of trespass here in Western cultures mm. to start drinking. But I think like a lot of us also, when I got drunk for the first time, it was that ah, moment. Mm. Like that, like, whoa, I have arrived. Like, what's up? This is, this is, this isn't feeling Mm -hmm. like this is the vibration I want to be on because it was a time when I felt comfortable in my skin, when I didn't feel the social anxiety that I normally felt. I had been suffering from, and since I was very, very young, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an anxiety disorder, Mm. but I was untreated at the time. So alcohol became self-medicating really quick, but it was really easy to cover up with just high school drinking and then later on college drinking because once again, you know, that's especially here in the US, like that's just the culture. That's what's to be expected of us. For me, it was almost like two levels. I had just my drinking level, which I was already out of control by the time I graduated high school. I had been suspended. I had underage alcohol citations. I was known by name to the local police. Mm. (laughs) Like, and I I can laugh at it now, right? Because it's so far away. But at the time it was almost like a badge of honor, Mm -hmm. like, which is so, it's so twisted, but I kind of think back to like, what was I watching on TV? Mm. Like bad girls club was like my favorite show. (laughs) And I was like, I'm emulating, you know, I remember I was watching Mob Wives, uh, <laughs> Jersey Shore. <laughs> I was like, it's like Jersey Shore, uh-huh. you know? And so you're really, you're really emulating what we're watching in the media. And I don't think I realized until like re- really recently how much it had impacted, not just me, but I think this, mm. our whole generation yeah. really. And it became cool to be kind of getting in trouble and it be, became cool to, you know, be the one who threw the parties and you knew where everything was at and quickly it became my identity. Mm. And so I just wasn't the party one, the wild one. And 
it was easy for me to fit into that, even though it was so separate from all of my other personality traits. But people seem to like this version of me or so I thought. And so I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to go with. Like, this is who I am. Right. Because for me, I grew up moving around a lot. I had my dad's in the State Department. So I think like a lot of people who move around for whatever reason, you get really comfortable never settling down. You get comfortable in unstable situations. You don't get super close to people because you know, well, this is temporary Mm. anyways. So like I know how to make friends quickly. And then I also know how to detach really quickly too. So I keep that distance just naturally because I'm not used to knowing people are staying more than two to three years in one place. But this time was different. And so it was weird. Mm. I had to try and get vulnerable or, you know, I had to try and fit into these groups of people who had known each other since they were in diapers and I was a total stranger and trying to, you know, get into those groups is so hard. Mm. And like, that's like the worst time of your life. Like when you're a 14 year old girl, (laughs) like so much going on, you know, especially when you have untreated mental health going on, on top of hormones and body changes and acne and braces Mm. and all the, all the horrible things <laughs> that I'm so <laughs> glad I never have to do again. <laughs> but for me, it only got worse. Like there, I, there was never a time in which I could say, oh, well, you know, my drinking got better for a little while or I was able to, no. I started strong and I ended strong. I was just zero to a hundred. Mm. It was always at a hundred. And really what I kind of would say, what I attribute to that was me getting on benzodiazepines, Mm. specifically clonopin for my panic attacks because Mm. I developed panic attacks at like, I think I was 19. And for anybody who gets those, obviously, you know, they're terrifying and horrible and they totally took over my life. And I went through like agoraphobia and just like withered away. I like lost like 20 pounds and I was already like super tiny. Mm. It really, I had to drop out of college for a semester. Like it, it really ruined my life. And then they put me on this medication, which is something very great medication for what it's supposed to be used for, but it's supposed to be a temporary medication, right? So like two to three months, you were supposed to be on it, going through your exposure therapy, getting your life back together. And then you know, your SSRIs or for me, my SRNI was supposed to kick in and you're supposed to taper off. I never tapered off. Mm. I just stayed on them for five years. So I went to college finally, and then I went out of state to college. And so now I'm not only binge drinking, but I'm taking benzos every Mm. day, mixing, which is a very lethal combination and uses the same brain receptors and so it was like automatic blackout every time mm. I could have like two drinks and I, I, at no point, and I don't know why, but I just like wasn't putting two and two together and it was kind of unfortunate, but it was a situation I kind of related similar to that show. I, I was it on Hulu. Was it dope sick? Mm, I haven't seen that one. With Michael Keaton. Mm. But it was about the opioid epidemic. And it was just one of those situations where for me, like when I went to rehab finally, after like many arrests and many hospitalizations and just really completely 
crumbling as a person. Mm. I could not get through a day without taking my meds. Like I, and I was abusing them too. Like I wasn't just taking Mm -hmm. them. I was snorting them. I was, you know, taking more than I needed. I was doctor shopping and Mm. going to the urgent care and getting more. And, you know, all I wanted was to not be anxious. Like Mm. that was really my intention was just, I just want to not feel like this. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was doing was just being a catalyst for more anxiety and worse. And, you know, so I got to this point where I had just ruined all my relationships, gone through friend groups. And I mean, I don't know how you go through all your friends and 30,000 people college, but Mm. I managed to do that. I managed to burn a lot of bridges and get kicked out of a lot of bars. (laughs) I just, you know, I came to a place where I was court ordered to go to treatment. And so I did. And I'm glad that I did, even though it didn't get me sober, it planted a seed Mm. because I was introduced to, at the time, 12 steps, which is how I originally got sober. And it introduced me to other people who drank and used the way I did. And I had never really Mm. been around other people who used what the intention that I did. Mm -hmm. And so it was like going to AA meetings for the first time was, it's so hard to, I don't know. It was just such a good feeling. Like, because I felt seen. Liberating. I felt, yeah, I felt heard. Mm -hmm. And then also this concept which had never occurred to me before, before, of course, was that sobriety was cool. Mm. You know, you, you're going in, and I got sober in LA, which mm. is a big young people's sobriety scene. And of course there's celebrities and it's very glamorous and you get ready for meetings. I mean, like this is a place to go. <laughs> and even though it sounds kind of silly, right? Because it's like, you're there to recover. You're there to not like, you know, shoot dope and die. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what I think was so cool about it was for somebody like me that was 22 years old, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be at the club. Right. You know, it made sobriety cool because you're going into these meetings and you're seeing these other women who are like so rad and, you know, maybe five, 10 years older than you and they're dressed cool and they look cool and they're probably smoking cigarettes, which is not <laughs> cool, but they made it look cool, you know? And they're like, yeah, dude, like sobriety. And you're like, yeah, sobriety. <laughs> I can do that. And they made it look cool. And that for me was something that I never experienced mm-hmm. before. And so I left treatment, you know, and I, and I was living with family for a little and I, what was now, what is now called sober curiosity, obviously the term was not a thing. Yeah. We had Ruby in on the podcast, but uh, yeah, we're doing yeah. 2018. Yeah. I'm like in 2015 yeah. when dinosaurs <laughs> Variety industry. Before the dinosaurs, I had about a year where I was just like, it's like when you know you need to break up with somebody mm. or you know you need to leave a work situation. Yep. Silence, <laughs> a moment of silence. But you just can't yet. Like mm. there's something holding you. Or like for me, what I've found is that like the, the word is grit. Mm. And there's a really good book on it, but it's basically like the positive side of being stubborn. it's different, but it's a personality trait. And it just means like, you're very, like, you're very pretty. You're just, you're not going to give up on something you try hard, but like another good example that they give end of the book. And also they did an interview with the author on hidden brain and a really good way she put it was people who are really gritty versus just like a normal, normal average person. 
someone who has too much grit or is very gritty will take a test versus someone who's average. And if somebody who doesn't have too much grit will come to a problem that they don't know and they'll maybe they'll try it for like a couple minutes and they'll be like, all right, I'll come back to this one, you know, and they'll skip it. And somebody with grit, too much grit, will sit on that problem until it's fucking done. Mm -hmm. So then you'll you'll go and ding, ding, ding. Okay, class, you know, time in your test. And you're like, fuck, I'm on problem three. I never got by it because like, you know, there's just something and I get stuck on things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I felt about the drinking. And I had I had detox, so I was clean from drugs. And I think that was really important because the benzos are what would have killed me and should have killed me. I was able to detox from those. And so I was clean, but I wasn't ready to get sober yet. I'd have weeks of going out and then I'd go to an AA meeting, you know, and kind of pop my head in, peek around, (laughs) take a 24 hour chip, or maybe I'd get a week or two in, but I just wasn't ready. And then Finally, I and I think what really kind of pushed me over the edge to make the decision was I started dating another addict mm. and I had never known somebody who was worse than me. Mm. And he was way worse. He was, you know, a meth addict and he had been using meth for like 15 years. And this was a whole nother world. Like, you know, I'm coming from this privileged, you know, upper middle class, regular college, you know life. Mm-hmm. And then I came into this world of like drug dealers and cartel mm-hmm. and gun running and just like completely like I was in a fucking like lifetime movie mm-hmm. or something, you know, like we're going to get Mexican food, babe. Okay. Like, who are we going with? Oh, just, you know, this guy from like the cartel. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh <laughs> casual. Yeah. Like, that's cool. But it become normal. And, and some part of my brain, and I think some of us are like this, like, I romanticize darkness Mm. or I romanticize like I idolize Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. for a really long time and just other like kind of tragic characters. There was something about tragedy that really sucked me in because it at the time in active addiction, I was like, I really thought I was going to be part of the 27 club. Like Mm. I was for sure. I was like, there's no way I'm going to make it past 27. Not I'm jumping out of cars. I'm like, just who knows? Like I, at one point I, you know, I overdosed, like just, I had no respect for my own life because I, I didn't love myself. I didn't know how, but anyways, I was dating this guy and I kind of got a taste of my own medicine, not just with being in a relationship with a person in active addiction, but all of the things that come with it as somebody who a loved one, right? Mm. Like, so He's like, hey, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. And then he disappeared for three days. Or one time he was like, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. And he stole my car. And was like, oh, I'm going to go drive to Bakersfield when we're in LA. I'm like, that's like two hours away. Like, why? To go probably to go get meth. Mm -hmm. Like, you know? Mm -hmm. But that was like my my regular life. Mm. was just like, oh, yeah, like casual. You're, you know, don't have a car right now. Like, he'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, that was my life. And it got to that point where I finally... After another night of drinking and getting in a fight, and it wasn't even like my worst night, you know, like it was a bad night, but it wasn't the worst by far. But I think I finally had reached my threshold. And, you know, I I tell people now it wasn't my last drink because Mm -hmm. over the course of the past six years, I've had other drinks, but it was my last drink in the sense that 
that version of me died that mm-hmm. day because I decided that I could not live like this anymore. Like I was going to end up in a trunk mm-hmm. or I was going to end up shot or just overdose mm-hmm. and, you know, or, or I was going to kill myself at that point mm-hmm. because I had no purpose and I had come so far from this girl who had gotten lacrosse scholarships mm-hmm. and was a biology major who was going to go to pre-med and like I had all these aspirations and then here I am in the middle of fucking nowhere in central California dating a meth addict and that that was I had nothing mm-hmm. else and so I was like okay <laughs> no mm-hmm. like this is not how I'm gonna go out and you know I drove to an AA meeting and that was the beginning of what the past you know six years and now you know some odd weeks begun but yeah it it doesn't i i think when i talk about that life like it doesn't even feel like i'm talking about myself anymore yeah you know i mean knowing you it doesn't feel like you at all either it's so it's so interesting when we meet people in their sobriety when we're like you have no idea who i was before you have no idea what like my life was or how i acted or the way i was because like that is not the kayla i know no, I love when, and I love meeting new people and they know me as like sober, kind of rigid, like quiet, like, and then when you get to know me better, I open up, but I'm definitely a little bit more, you know, quiet when it comes to meeting new people and things like that. I like to observe before I kind of dive in versus like me and active addiction was like parties here, buying shots, you know, but then I'm like broken phone and like, credit card stolen. And like, I don't know how many North faces I lost because like I would leave them at the bar and I'd wake up. Hey, got to call my friends because, you know, Kayla fell asleep in that big house bathroom again, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that. And that was a normal fucking thing for me to do. Oh, Kayla. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that there's so much there that Folks are going to relate to though, because even when we see a version of ourselves that we literally cannot even fathom, that is like so far away from the person we are currently, I think that so much of what you just shared just it, it sounds like addiction to me. Like it sounds like active addiction when you were like yeah. that wasn't who I was, like that. And it's like, yeah, your brain was hijacked by chemicals and substances, and like that sounds like addiction to me. And I know that your journey has continued to evolve and is something that I admire the way you do things because it it looks like a living document to me. Like your version of recovery is something that is not rigid. It is something that evolves mm-hmm. and it flows. And and I mean, when I say not rigid, I mean in, in like the opposite of that, like flow, like you really do truly flow with what feels right in that season and that stage of life. So for those who are unfamiliar with this term soberish, can you tell us like what that means to you and and what this space is kind of starting to look like for you? Yeah. So I would say over the last maybe three years, I've really had a new awakening to what recovery meant to me because in the beginning I started my sobriety journey in the rooms of, Mm -hmm. you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. That space will always hold a special place in my heart. There are things I would change about it, but you know, that's a story for another time. (laughs) 
(laughs) Anyways, my point is what got me sober wasn't going to keep me sober, (laughs) not for forever, because we're all unique individuals. We evolve, hopefully, we're supposed to, (laughs) right? And so as I evolved in my sobriety, I needed more. I needed more than just meeting and listening to somebody's story. I needed more than just doing the steps over and over. I loved being of service. I loved taking commitments. I loved community, but I needed to learn more. I needed to understand more and I wasn't getting that there. So I kind of had to step out on my own, which was hard because at the time I was very, I was ostracized for it. So I was kind of you know, a lot of my friends kind of dropped me under the assumption that, oh, she's going to go out and relapse because mm. she's not running a program in the proper way. Yeah. And that's why I created, you know, a thousand hours dry in the dry club, because I was looking and hoping to find other individuals who didn't drink, but who didn't necessarily run a traditional program. Mm-hmm. And then I realized there's so many people out there who either A, were already doing that or B, desire to do that. Yeah but didn't know how to because there wasn't anything else available. And there were smaller groups, smart recovery, things like that, just starting to come into the picture. But for me, like I was in LA and like, if you know LA, like the closest smart recovery meeting was in the Valley. Like you're not going to catch me out of the Valley. So like (laughs) option B. Mm -hmm. The internet. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, I'll do, no, don't get me wrong. I will cross mountains for my recovery. But that's a really fucking big mountain when you live in LA. (laughs) It's a really big, far fucking mountain, okay? So I was going to try and find something else first. And I still had some friends in the program. And so, you know, I was going to therapy at the time. I was going back to school. I was, you know, really into fitness. So I had really kind of created my own toolbox before I even Mm -hmm. really knew what that was. And it was working really well for me. But... I, like I said, I evolved. I started to read a lot of books. I started to kind of question the idea, is alcoholism a disease? I don't Mm. know. I don't think so. You know, I didn't really have a higher power. I kind of was like, never felt, I thought I was talking to God, but like, I never really felt like I was talking to anybody. Mm. Like, is that normal? Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) you know, it felt kind of fake Mm. uh, or inauthentic or like I was doing something wrong. And so that evolved, right? And then- created a thousand hours dry and this community really dedicated to alcohol free lifestyle, which it still is. And then that opened up to, you know, the sober curious because what I had realized over time and talking to so many people is the same thing that I went through. Not everybody is ready right away. Like you might kind of want to dip your toe in. Some people totally, you know, just dive in the deep end. And some of us need to go and then in the little kiddie pool first, <laughs> kind of, you know, get our toes wet and then, you know, wait till the water's right and, and go on and slowly. But that's kind of what I started to recognize was just this idea of binary recovery, which what was taught, you know, to me in treatment and in 12 steps and what I truly believed at the time it started to kind of, that belief started to kind of break down and its foundation, it didn't really make sense to me anymore. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't know what I believe anymore, but I know that I don't believe this. Mm. So over the last, you know, I'd say three years of my recovery, 
a lot of it has been spent doing a lot of research and service in like the harm reduction community. And that was a big step I think that we took at Reframe mm-hmm. that was doing something different was giving people the cutback track. And it's like, whoa, like, is that a good idea? And you're like, maybe not. But you know what? I think what we realized when, you know, you were there was it's going to get a lot of people in the door entry point. that yeah. are not exactly that are not going to come in or even get close mm-hmm. if you're just giving one option, which mm-hmm. is absent. That opened up my mind a lot because at the time I was running all the community meetings and I'm talking to all these people. And what I'm realizing is moderation works for a ton of people. Mm. Not everybody who has a problem with drinking has an alcohol use disorder. And not every person who has an alcohol use disorder needs to be sober. Like we all drink for so many different reasons. And especially like with COVID, so many people had habitual problems that didn't require abstinence. And those are things that I had never like considered. Moving forward, I just kept being trying to be more and more open-minded to this idea of everybody's journey looks different. And maybe mine does too. Mm. Like what is what does mine really look like? Like, am I sober for not I don't want to say the right reasons, but like, why am I sober? Because sometimes I'd ask myself, like, am I sober just because of like who I am? Like, because people expect that from me with a thousand hours dry and reframing stuff. Like, what if I wanted to start drinking again? Would that even be possible to mm. do? Like, you know, or would I have to live this double life <laughs> because this is not the identity that the public sees me as? Mm. But then I think that I made it really clear the first time I drank by being really open about it Mm -hmm. that I'm going to do things my way Mm. because I always have. And that's what works for me. And that's why I say recovery and not sobriety or not, you know, six years of abstinence because that's not my story. I've, I've drank a handful of times and now I, I microdose or actually mini, I'm finding out I am mini dose because (laughs) I take three milligrams Mm. apparently you know, with uh, mushrooms. I've been experimenting with kava, which does not work for me. It, I like the way it feels, but like people, I don't know. It, it's definitely an alcohol alternative. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But like for me, it gives me gnarly ass, I, basically hangovers, which <laughs> I was like, no. Yeah, not for me. You know, and I don't think that's forever. I think a lot of people, it works for a lot of people. So I don't want to like hate on it. But beforehand, I would not have even like, whoa, no, like anything, like even CBD in the beginning, like I was like, I will not take CBD. It's too close to THC. Like it might get me high. And now I'm like, I take CBD, like, (laughs) and I'm so much more open to this idea of harm reduction in general. Raise your hand if you've ever thought, hey, therapy sounds cool. Then opened your computer to find help and then immediately shut the laptop in a panic. Me? Anyone else? This experience is such a bummer to me. Therapy is such a useful tool in our sober toolbox, but there are often so many barriers to entry that folks quit before they ever get help. That's why we're happy to be sponsored by BetterHelp, a digital therapy platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. 
It's easy. Fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unlimited messages with your therapist between meetings. No more overwhelm, no more barriers to entry, just help when you need it. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sober stories. That's betterhelp.com slash sober stories. I have friends that take naltrexone, mm-hmm. which I never took, but like I think if I had to now, I totally would. Yeah. I can think of a ton of people I know who would totally benefit from totally. it. And I have clients who use it and it's a game changer for a lot of them. It's it's crazy. And this whole idea, and I, I love it. And shout out to Dank Recovery, like, because it's such a funny ass page, <laughs> but then they'll just like post these random series posts about like harm reduction yeah. is rad. And all their audience gets so mad because they're like, fuck people on methadone. They're not really sober. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck you. If it keeps a needle out of your arm. Right. You're in recovery, man. Like, you know, if it- <laughs> for, for people who don't know what harm reduction is, can you give them a, a synopsis? Yeah. So I think it can be a lot of things for a lot of different people, but I think you just have to think about literally what it is. We're reducing the harm that we're doing to ourselves. So for one person, harm reduction could look like this one guy that I have met here in Ohio while I've been here and actually got him on the reframe app which I think has been helpful for him. But he was telling me he was drinking like like a bottle a day, like a full handle a day. I mean, of liquor. Of liquor. And now he says he takes probably maybe like six to 10 shots a day. Like to me, that's recovery. That's harm reduction. Okay, this man has gone from taking, I don't even know how many shots. I know there's like 17 shots and a fifth. So I don't even know how many shots are in a full. I think it makes my stomach hurt a little bit. <laughs> Just, ugh. But to me, that's not, that's progression. Why are we not yeah. celebrating that? Like for him, he was telling me, he's like, you know, my goal is to get to like four to five drinks, shots a day. Like that's my goal. And I'm like, that's awesome. Is yeah. that, is that a lot? Is that moderation? No. But mm-hmm. from what he was doing, that's harm reduction, you know, giving Mm. people a place to get clean needles instead Mm -hmm. of reusing dirty ones and getting hep C or giving hep C to somebody else. That's harm reduction, giving people a place to test their drugs because we're going to do them anyways. When you're a drug Mm -hmm. addict, hate to break it to you, but if you're going to take my drugs or if when I was in active addiction, like there was nothing that was going to stop me from getting high. Mm -hmm. Like it just wasn't, and not even getting high, just functioning. I needed them to function. If you were to tell me there might be something in here, but I'm not sure, but that was my only option. Like I'm going to fucking take that chance because I already know what withdrawal looks like and no thanks. Right. And how do we make that less dangerous for people? Exactly. So why are Hmm. we not, why are other countries doing it? And we are not, which is these spaces to go to test your drugs for fentanyl and, you know, other Mm -hmm. shit that they put in there. God knows. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in the drinking space, that looks like cutting back and that looks like just drinking less than you were drinking mm-hmm. before, making space for people to recover in a way that works for them and allows them to heal and allows them to be safe or safer than they mm-hmm. were before. And I think those are all wins. And I think we really need to stop 
and get away from the this idea of binary like sobriety is mm-hmm. binary yeah. recovery is binary like we're still still in it in some ways there's nothing in the world hello like literally like look at gender now look mm-hmm. at sexuality look at literally everything like there's nothing look at the color blue do you know how many blues <laughs> are in a crayon box now <laughs> just saying like literally not nothing like name one thing on a planet that's binary like please email me text me i will say i'm wrong but i'm not <laughs> because there's nothing some science nerd is gonna totally stomp you on this but i hear what you're saying <laughs> But even yeah. think think about it, even the whole like gender thing, like the most yeah. conservative person, you could just be like, well, technically no, because there's intersexual people. So that makes three mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. So there's not two. <laughs> Sorry. Like from a totally scientific perspective, not mm-hmm. even getting into like the political side. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Right. So it just doesn't make sense. And this all kind of started and I'm going to be talking about it in my, in my book, I'm touching on it, mm-hmm. but because I've been having to do a lot of research on it, mm. it kind of all started with the, you know, the prohibition and then mm-hmm. the movement coming after it, which was AA and the temper movement or Tempest mm-hmm. movement and people getting this idea in their heads that you have to be this fall down, you know, yeah. drunk that kind of, you know, like Bill in the big book for anybody who mm-hmm. is unfamiliar, he's the one who wrote it. His story is kind of the story you think of like the alcoholic, this guy who had this great life and then he fucked it up by drinking and was getting hospitalized and could not keep his shit together and had to, you know, drink to wake up in the morning and and live his life. The most hilarious part about all of that is that he came up with AA after dropping LSD. Mm -hmm. He got sober and then he was messing around with psychedelics. Used a substance. (laughs) <laughs> messing around with psychedelics and then created AA and then people in AA were like, nah, we're going to leave that part out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like that's kind mm-hmm. of important, but like that, yeah. that's like a sidebar note. But my point There's is- There's so much right? history and context about it. They're like, oh, that would be important to know. That, that would You're be like, no, know. we're not. We're taking all of this <laughs> out, erasing it because it doesn't fit in our narrative mm-hmm. of complete abstinence. My point being, right, that Bill is just one kind of alcoholic just like mm-hmm. I am, just like you were, just like anybody else mm-hmm. is, whatever you want to call it, right? And alcoholics not even a correct term anymore. Yeah. But yeah. you know what I mean? We all drink differently. So the way we should treat it is different. Duh. I think that that's- Well, and yeah, one of the things that I have noticed today, but also just noticed about you is that like, I really appreciate how specific you are about language and how mm-hmm. you say things like substance use disorder, or alcohol use disorder versus- addiction or versus alcoholism and recovery, recovering like very specific and nuanced language, because I think that that is just one more way that we open more doors for people. That's one more way that we give more access to this and say, there really isn't one right way to do this. And at the same time, we're removing shame from it because I think obviously this, this binary that we've had for so long in this, this very unnuanced, just the opposite of nuance, this very like stayed version of yeah old school like iteration of of what it means to be a person who doesn't drink has has held so many of us back for so long and that's really a lot that we're doing here and i'm curious for somebody who might be listening to this and and says oh wow kayla was sober quote unquote totally sober abstinent and now she's sober ish 
Like what is, what, how do you discern what feels like it is in alignment with your recovery versus what is not in alignment with your recovery as far as using substances? Totally. So the way that I think about it and the way that I tell people when they ask me, because especially when it comes to like microdosing, I totally am Mm -hmm. a big proponent of microdosing for somebody who's never actually done. Like I've never like shroomed, like I'm totally into the mini microdosing. But if you caught me like three years ago, I would have been like, no, like you can literally (laughs) watch my, my Jubilee, my Jubilee thing. And I was against marijuana and now I'm like marijuana maintenance Mm. for sure. Do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also said in that video too, I was like, watch, I'm going to change my mind in a couple of years and I won't, (laughs) and I won't think this anymore. So like, I always Mm -hmm. disclaim myself, but really the way that I think about it and the way that I'm kind of thinking about soberish too, is like, it's a play on the word sober, right? Like ish, Mm -hmm. it's kind of this idea, like the fact like I'm bisexual, right? So like I'm straightish, I'm gayish, I'm not really anything. I'm just hanging (laughs) in the middle, getting left out of everything. And that's kind of how I felt about my sobriety for a little when I was having an or allotting myself, you know, I said, for me, perfectionism doesn't work. And giving Mm -hmm. myself this rigid abstinence is kind of making me think about drinking more than I think I should maybe I'll allot myself maybe like one day a year or something to have a cocktail if I so desire. And that works for me because mm-hmm. I, I, I usually will have it. I'll have a couple drinks and nothing will happen and it won't be that great. And then it kind of just solidifies my foundation the next day. Maybe mm-hmm. I have a hangover, maybe I don't. And then I, I'm like, all right, well, this is why I don't drink because it really wasn't that mm-hmm. great. Do you have any red flags that you would look for, for when you're considering when to drink, how to drink, what that looks like for you? Totally. You know, I think it goes back to your original question, which is for me, it's intention. What is my intention behind doing anything really? Like not just drinking. I have to watch this as somebody who has like comorbid disorders. I'll give like examples for some people. So obviously- I, I feel I have recovered from an alcohol use disorder as well as substance mm-hmm. abuse disorder. It gets fucking confusing, right? Cause like, <laughs> am I in remission? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. You are not uh, recovering. Like, you have recovered again, that nuance yeah, in the language. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So like I should have maybe said like six years, I have been recovered six years, mm-hmm. but anyways, right. Maybe I'll change it. It's this idea really that in my eyes, I have done the work. I have put in the work. I have done the therapy. I have found the root cause. I have addressed the root cause. And I have moved forward from the reason that I was drinking. I no longer have that. I mean, I still suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder, but I take my medication. I go to therapy. I use movement. I have a meditation mm-hmm. practice. I have a mindfulness practice. So. An intention would be, right, like I microdose. So mm-hmm. every morning I get up five five days a week and I take my little mi- microdose mushrooms. And they don't get you high. Sorry. You'd have to take all of them <laughs> probably and that would be a waste of your money. <laughs> and I feel a little better. But what it does behind the scenes and what I'm really using it for is the neuroplasticity. It helps your brain rewire itself. So for me, I am currently doing EMDR therapy, Mm -hmm. which just a short blurb about that for anybody who 
is unfamiliar. It's a type of therapy that helps you learn how to reassociate negative situations in your life. It's really good for PTSD. It's really good for anxiety. It's really good for panic attacks. So for me, my brain right now is relearning how to do a lot of things and reassociating things like trying to reassociate that my car is not bad. And it sounds scary to drive because I'm, you know, relearning how to expose myself to that. So what the mushrooms do is they help my brain create those new neural pathways quicker than if it was just me doing it Mm -hmm. with the therapy. Mm -hmm. It also helps with my depression. Immediately within the first couple of weeks of me doing it, my partner at the time noticed, he was like, your mood is significantly better. Mm -hmm. You have not been so negative because I'm a negative ass Nancy. Normally, <laughs> no, and no, not me. <laughs> a lot of us are like, if you if you've ever read the Happiness Hypothesis, like we have different, you know, we're born with different kind of bottom lines. I guess you're just you know, straightforward. Like That's all. Yes, but some of us are more, you know, prone to being optimistic, and some of us are more prone to being pessimistic. Me on the pessimistic side, <laughs> not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but just naturally I tend to be more of a Debbie Downer. And the microdosing really has helped me shift my perspective to not hyper-focus so much mm. on the negative shit. Because guess what? There's always going to be negative shit and there's always going to be positive stuff. So mm-hmm. for me, my intention is not, oh, great. I can't wait to wake up this morning and take these gummies that don't really make me feel any certain type of way specifically. But it's like, you know, it's the whole idea of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to can't wait to get high on my medication, my SSRIs. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're going to feel something different in four to mm-hmm. six weeks. Hey, yeah. you know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's a long-term thing. And I think if I were to go, oh man, I'm having such a shit day. I'm not going to take three gummies. Say today, I think I'm going to take like six gummies and mm-hmm. see what happens. Mm-hmm. That would be me misusing yeah. them, right? Like this is not no longer aligned with my recovery and my reason for taking these. Mm. So same thing happens really with anything. I think, you know, exercising is another one. I have orthorexia. So I'm still in and recovering, trying to from that eating disorder. And so mm-hmm. I have to be really careful. And for anybody, and it's a weird one. It just basically means I have a an unhealthy obsession with eating healthy and if I don't eat healthy, I punish myself mm. by not eating later or by overexercising. Mm-hmm. And so like recently I've had, I had an injured vertebrae in my neck and I had a rib cage out of place from overexercising so much. Mm. And then, you know, they tell you like, well, if you're not going to rest, your body's going to rest for you. Mm-hmm. So I have not been working out the last couple of weeks and it's really had to I've had to shift once again my toolbox, but my point was mm. my intention behind working out sometimes would no longer be a sanctuary, you know, a place to lower my anxiety, a place to go to practice movement and to get out of my head and to ground myself. It became a place to punish myself mm. for eating food. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's so fucked up, but like that's just how my brain works. So I have to look when I'm going to the gym. And go, all right, what's my intention behind exercising today? Is it because I'm really looking forward to this yoga flow and I really love this teacher and I can't wait for that three minutes of savasana at the end of class? Mm. Or am I going because I had three cookies last night 
and I'm trying to, you know, burn more calories off. Mm-hmm. Not a good reason to go work out, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet again, you know, your intention. Why are you why are you posting something on Instagram? And especially I think for us ladies, like I suppose some very provocative pictures. <laughs> and not to say if you post provocative pictures and you're all about it and that's you and that makes you feel good, and that is totally cool. But I wasn't doing it for that reason. Mm. I was doing it because I liked the attention I was getting. I liked the external validation that I was getting. So my intention, yet again, right behind right. doing something was not in alignment with me recovering and me being independent and valuing myself. It was me looking for external validation, yeah. me looking for something outside of myself. Mm. I just have to do what aligns with my intentions and I have to ask myself, I have to be aware. I think a lot of us in recovery have to be very Mm self-aware because it's very easy to slip back into old habits or not even habits, but like just catching yourself having way too much coffee because you're, you like that up, up, up feeling. As I'm still drinking iced coffee in the afternoon. (laughs) Call me out, Kayla. Why not you? (laughs) I mean, like me too. Sorry, dude, it's even, it's even lighter for me, but hey, it's decaf. (laughs) You have to be hyper-aware. And so I'll talk to people now ask, you know, for especially with soberish, because it's so and that's the whole thing. It's not really a label, but you can label it, you can do yeah. whatever you want with it. That's the whole point. I think when it comes to drinking, you have to go into it like somebody who doesn't have mm. an alcohol use disorder goes into it. They don't go into it with the intention of I'm really gonna have this drink because I feel like shit mm-hmm. I'm stressed out in my you know, partners bitching at me and mm. I just need to chill out. So that's not the right reason to drink. You could have a drink because, hey, you know what? I had a great day. Mm. I just feel like having cocktail. You know, and I think the intention part is is such a good call out. And I think that if we can keep that as the thing in mind, because for me, if I think about the intention behind my own alcohol use, there's not a realm of possibility where I wouldn't drink a glass of wine just to drink a glass of wine, I would always do it to escape. Like there is no realm of any possibility where I go back to using alcohol in some way and it doesn't just end up exactly where it was. Like and and I think that when I when we think about where our paths are and what that looks like for us and if it is something that evolves like yours does or if it is not something like mine's pretty stayed, I think the things that come up for me are like, know thyself and what your intention are. And like, there never was a time in my life where my intention was to do anything but escape. Like that was like, wanted to be drunk. I drank to get drunk. I always drank to escape. I love the feeling of being drunk. Like there's no realm of drinking that is just like having a glass of champagne on New Year's Eve. Like, and because I always know what my intention has always been, what my history has always been using this substance. So I think that this idea of intention is is really important and to really know why we're using a substance, what it's there for. And one of the things I love about the soberish realm though too is is like a caveat from that is also like microdosing mushrooms doesn't get you high, but it doesn't align with quote unquote sobriety. It doesn't fit in the box that has been created. And so it's excluding a lot of people to have this one box when they might be using something as a tool and they're not using it to get high. They're just using it as something that supports them and maybe even helps them be sober from alcohol or, you know, and I think that when we create more spaces for more people to make 
a better lifestyle choice and to reduce the harm of whatever substance that they're using or whatever their substance abuse is or whatever they're overusing or misusing. I think that that makes more space for more people. So I love what you are doing. I could talk about this with you all day long. The last question that I always ask every interview, and I think I know the answer for you because I know you're writing a book, but if your story were to be titled something, what would it be titled and what kind of book would it be? So I'm going to throw a twist at you. It wouldn't be the book that I'm writing now because okay, (laughs) the book I'm writing now is not a memoir. It's a guide. My book would probably be like, how are you alive? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Like ironically. Is this a comedy or is this, yeah, is this dark? It's like a dark comedy, like almost like. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, it's like a question mark. Like, how are you alive? Like question uh-huh. mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, it speaks to when I look back at all of the crazy ass shit that I did, mm-hmm. all the dangerous situations that I put myself in, all the, all the shit I was consuming and putting in my body. Not, not only that. And I go like, wow, like I. I'm Mm. here. So like, I must have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And you know, for me, that's kind of how I connected with my higher power, which is Mm -hmm. just the universe. Like, I don't necessarily believe in a specific organized religion or a God. But shit, like, for sure, I'm I'm here for something because there were many, many times that I should not have woken up, or I should not have gotten up. Or if I'd stayed on the path that I was on Mm. I would have been the trunk girl for sure like I say that now so casually I was in like a psycho situation with somebody who Mm. was the if I can't have you know can for me it's kind of like that I have to be able to kind of like laugh at that now otherwise it's fucking depressing and like really dark but I think the the juxtaposition is like look where I'm at now like what a joke like a publishing company came to mm. me and asked me to write a book. Like, why? <laughs> why me? Or like, you know, help and you and I both like helping to create this like $350 million company. <laughs> I dropped out of school twice. <laughs> like, who the fuck am I to be doing anything? Yeah. Why is anyone mm-hmm. asking me for advice? <laughs> Literally, yeah. I'm the worst. But I'm the best at being the worst, yeah. right? Yeah. Like queen. <laughs> it's just so funny how, like you said, you get to start over. Yeah. Like, I like to tell people like I, I've lived two lives mm-hmm. basically. And so that's kind of why I think it would be like a dark comedy or like, I think it would make like a really great like yeah. TV show. I would have to be on like HBO. Totally. Yeah. It would totally be great. And I already know who I would want. to. Play. Oh, who's going to play you? Fuck. So I forget her name, but she was in Big Little Lies. The girl that played Reese Witherspoon's daughter, the cute girl with the blonde curls. She's better than a bunch of other stuff. But I've seen that. I show. don't know. Because Kirsten Dunst, everyone thinks I look yeah. like Kirsten Dunst, but she's I like older than me, yeah. so she can't play me. Okay. Well, we'll IMDB that and put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, girl, if, if you're listening yeah, to this, we have an like, idea. <laughs> me. Only because, like you said, I am writing a book, which is going to be called Soberish. That's the mm-hmm. main title. But that is more, mm-hmm. more of a guide. I'm going to give you some background on how we got here as a society with alcohol. And then I'm going to kind of guide you through some nuanced ideas, some nuanced tools, resources. I'm going to be talking with some really cool experts who are going to be in the book. I did a case study. So I'm going to be having 
experiences mm. from real other people in the book as well. And it's also going to be interactive. So there's going to be exercises to do, prompts and stuff. So I'm really excited about it because there's nothing else kind of like it. I want to speak to those mm -hmm. people that are in college that are feeling the way that I felt who thought that you couldn't get sober in college. I want to speak to those high schoolers. You know, I want to speak to those people right out of college. I want to speak to everybody, but like really what's missing. I felt like, th I felt like right. this was missing. Do we have a release date? So it's, it's September of next year. Wow. That, that might change. It just depends. There's so, there's so much that goes into it, dude. Like I'm, I can't even imagine. I was like, what am I signing up for? Like, this is exciting. And I was like, nah, <laughs> like, this is a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's a new era mm. with soberish. At the end of the day, if we can save more people, I think really that's all that, all that matters. Yes. You know, I'll end on this. Like the page has only been up for like a week and I already got a message from a girl and she was like, Hey, I'm really thankful for this age and this idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been trying to get sober, but I haven't been able to. But ever since I kind of stumbled upon this page and this idea of being soberish, I've actually been able to drink less alcohol. <sighs> One week old. And that was so cool to me. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, but that's it. That's all you need. Like you said, language yeah. is so important. And just holding space Opening doors. For and we're going to start meeting soon as well. Amazing. Well, and, and, I've always admired you for the space holding and the community building that you do, because that truly, like you really, truly do live being of service to others and having that as part of your recovery. So I know our people are going to want to connect with you. I know they're going to want to know what you're up to, how to connect with Soberish. How do they find you? Where are you on the internet? What do you have going on in your world? Yes. So you can find me a couple of places. I search Kayla Lyon. It'll be under Kayla Lyons because <laughs> the person who was Kayla Lyons is inactive. I know. I have either. the same problem with Beth Bowen. I'm like, babes, like I'll pay you. I just, I just need. I it. know. I was like, name your cost. I know. Yeah. And then Soberish is just at Join Soberish. I'm active there. I'm hosting there on Wednesdays, and then I have a group of really awesome women who are hosting there as well. And all of us have mm -hmm. different recovery paths and different backgrounds. So you can kind of, once again, go there and see who you connect with. I also hold my own podcast with mm -hmm. my co-host, Leah. And that is under Generation Dry. You can find it on any platform. And those episodes drop on Sunday. And it's not necessarily a sobriety podcast in the way that me and Bess was. Leah is a, a licensed mm -hmm. clinical social worker uh, like Beth. and so. We really talk about a lot of mental health, a lot of definitely we we touch on sobriety and stuff, but I I found what I think is also missing is like there's so much stuff for the newcomer. Mm. But like what about people who've been in recovery? I don't I don't know. I couldn't tell you yeah. how much of my feed is the same fucking thing, dude. And it's because <laughs> we taught everybody how to use Canva Literally. And now Literally. I kind of regret it. Yeah. But yeah. You know, it's kind of that next level. Like, I know alcohol is a carcinogenic. I know this. I know that. I want to know the next level. Mm. I want to know yeah. once I get past the three month mark, what's next? Six months, year. Wanna, how do I maintain this? That's what we're going to, that's what we're talking about there. Amazing. Y'all can go dig into the archives of uh, The Dry Life and, and yes. find some co hosted episodes with me and Kayla. So good. Way back in the day, probably like what, two, last summer, two summers ago? I don't I even think, yeah. what is time. But Kayla, yeah, 
good. There's, this there's has some good been shit. such a treat. There is some good shit in there. And we've had some really great guests on there too. So yeah. we'll go dig into the archives there. But Kayla, this has been so much fun. It is so good to catch up and hear about what you are building and continue to build. And I know that we are all going to be waiting for the release of Soberish. But in the meantime, y'all connect with Kayla on Join Soberish. I almost said joinsoberish.com and give you a, a, a webpage. But at Join Soberish, Kayla, thank you so much for your time today. Always. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Kayla Lyons. Having known Kayla personally for so long, it's really amazing to watch her create more inclusive spaces for folks making these positive lifestyle changes. She is gifted at community building. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.